Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. Have I got a show for you today. Dr. Margot McKinnon's with us. You guys are going to love, love, love her. And I have so many questions for you. Dr. Margot, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for inviting me. It's really exciting to meet you almost in person. <laughs> That's right. We were talking about different Canadian areas and, and uh, I said, I've been there. I've been there. I know you're welcome up here anytime. Thank you. I will come in the summer. I don't Very do nice. snow. Yeah, don't I don't do, do snow. snow. And if you're coming to, because Ke- I'm in Calgary, Alberta, if anybody wants to look that up. And we have our big 10-day stampede, which is half finished off last week. So if you're coming, come join us to stampede. All right. Maybe we'll do that. Okay, everybody, let me tell you about Dr. Margot. Margot McKinnon, PhD, is a, was a high school English teacher, author, and visionary. She's still an author and a visionary who helps teens and people of all ages create the life their spirit wanted to live. Margot earned a doctorate from the University of Oxford in England with a thesis on how to bring spirituality into Canadian schools. That's what really piqued my curiosity was, okay, I want to talk to this woman and see not just Canadian schools, but schools in general. I, I'm fascinated to hear what you have to say about all of that. So let's just go ahead and dive in. As a small child, you were able to communicate and see spirits. Are there any experiences that stand out in your memory? Yes. And probably I would say, I always said that the first experience I really remembered that was transformational was when I was a little girl around four years old and I had a little doll named Michael and I had a little crib in our living room and I used to go and put him to bed every night while my family was in the basement watching TV. So I'd pull his little blanket up and then one night in the dark, I heard this voice and it said, you are to be a teacher. And my little four-year-old self said, okay. And then I became a high school English teacher. And uh, I could have been a whole bunch of other things, Julie. I had many opportunities to go into business and to take my career in a different place. But I promised that voice that I would be a teacher. And so I was. When when I heard you say that before I read it, some somewhere I heard you say it. I thought, okay, I every every woman in my family has been a teacher, and some of the men on both sides: my grandmother, my mother, my nephews, my uncles. And so, as I was growing up, I was like, I am not going to be a teacher. Um, I'm not doing it. I want to 
make some money. Teachers are fabulous, but they don't make any money. And I want to make some money and I'm not going there. Fought it, fought it, fought it, fought it. Well, so what have I done my whole career? In nine companies, I teach people about things. I teach surgeons about my surgical device inventions. I teach people who come to work with me. I teach the world now about woo-woo. What am I doing? I'm a teacher. But in my mind, it was just teaching in, in a school setting, in a classroom. But I think it's so interesting that you were to be a teacher, and that's one aspect of teaching, but certainly your teaching skills are being used in a multitude of ways. I love teaching, and I taught high school kids. I love that teenager, and I loved working with uh, particularly teenagers who are struggling with being human. Because, Julie, being human is a really complicated thing, and not everybody knows how to do it. And I really enjoyed working with uh, kids who were struggling with being human with who didn't quite have a grasp, their feet on the ground, um, and vulnerable kids who came from homes that uh, were kind of breaking their spirit. And I felt like their buffer, that my classroom was a sacred space. And every morning on my way to work, I used to say to that voice that told me to be a teacher, just bring me the students who want you, me to hear you and bring them what you want them to know or be or feel. Uh, So my classroom, I felt, was a sacred space and a buffer for them uh, against the outside world, which can be kind of harsh and abrasive. And especially for vulnerable kids or highly sensitive kids, um, I wanted my space to feel like they were at home. Well, looks like you did a magnificent job of it. I'm not sure you all said- of them would say that, but you know, the <laughs> ones the ones I could reach. There you go. There you go. You said that you knew you were a spirit trapped in a body as a little kid. How? How did you know that? Because I used to um, feel I'm five foot ten and a half, just so you know. Uh, but and I was always tall, even as a child. But I used to lie on my bed. And talk to the spirits because I had that voice, but I also had I could rooms look like cocktail parties or something with people standing there and they'd kind of turn around, but they were spirits, right? But they would turn around and look at me. And I had to teach myself, is that like a like I don't know, a flesh human or is that a spirit human or and I had to teach myself. Um so I always had that awareness. And then when I'd lie down on my bed, which I need a nap to this day, and it's not really a nap. It's more of a, I just need a break from the world because I'm lugging around this huge body all day long and I need to lie down now and let it rest. Uh, But as a child, I'd lie down on my bed and go, how long do I have to do this for? And my lungs would feel so heavy breathing. And I knew that, and and I also had this profound sense of like, how long do I have to stay here? Like, what do you, like, how long? And you weren't sick. There wasn't anything wrong with your lungs. They just, you just felt heavy in your body as a spirit. Yes, I did. And I had that awareness that I was a spirit in this body and that someday I'd be going home. 
But I was also very lucky. I consider myself very lucky because I had a family who this was a normal way of being in our family. Um, we've my grandmother used to see spirits. And uh, so I would say, hey, Nana, I just saw this woman. Oh, did she have what? Did she have her blue dress on? Yes, with little flowers. Oh, she's all the she's all here all the time, dear. And uh, so we always had that. It was always like a normal part of our family culture, I guess I would call it. Um, so my parents were very good about it. My mom in particular, because she used to tuck me into bed at night and, and she would do the big sweep of my room. Uh, do they go behind your curtain? Do they go in your cupboard? Look under your bed so that she'd do the big sweep to see if there were any spirits in there. But they turned up at night when everybody had gone to sleep was the problem. So but I was allowed, I was the only one who was allowed to get up and go and crawl in with them at night when I saw them. So they were very, very supportive. And research is really showing, Julie, that when you have a supportive family, it, uh, it, it really helps with kind of um, buffering you and also where you can make sense of these experiences. And children who come from families who say, oh, don't be silly, oh, you just want attention, or that's the devil talking, or uh, that sort of thing, the child grows up n not quite understanding reality because these experiences are more real than you and I talking right now. And it gives them a very um, kind of anxious and sometimes unbalanced sense of reality. It's been my experience. I completely agree. It's been my experience that everybody has these abilities. They come in with them and little children are told, oh, honey, that's just your imagination or that's not real or yeah, no, that's, you know, that you don't, you don't need to pay any attention to that. So children learn to shut that down. And I've had so many moms in particular over the years, Margot, that have said to me, please write a children's book that will help me explain to my child what happens when they're seeing a deceased loved one and, and they can tell me information about my dead grandfather who's been gone for 20 years that they never met and it's all accurate. Please write something that helps me describe to my child what they're seeing when they know about past lives. How do they know this information? And then also the other one is, when somebody dies, what happens? And so that's what my my angel messages series of four children's books are about is, oh, by the way, cats climb trees and they chase mice and stuff like that. And when your cat dies, you can still talk to its spirit. You can still see its spirit, even though maybe mommy and daddy can't. And so it fosters the communication to validate what they're seeing exactly what you're talking about because it's so important and then those skill sets that they take into their adulthood are useful in pretty much every area of their lives well the thing is many very often the messages are really comforting or quite directive in a good way and uh so why shut that down it's like near-death experiences and i consider myself to have had two um and when you go off into unconditional love and it's so beautiful, so magnificent that you don't want to come back here, um, 
why would you want to take that experience away from somebody and just say that it's some sort of brain shutting down or some chemical release uh, when these experiences are transformational and magnificent? Well, because people are afraid. And we're taught to be linear thinkers. And if it doesn't, if you can't prove it, it's not real. So I think we're conditioned in this day and age and have been probably for the past, what, couple hundred years, maybe 150 as people have become more well-educated. That's all been been shut down. And also governments and religions and cultures, you got to go through somebody else to get to God, to get to spirit. You can't do it yourself when humans have been doing it since the beginning of time. Well, it was a survival survival mechanism. When I was young, like 25, I uh, spent some time in um, like in the Thai Hill tribes and, uh, and we had an elder there and he said, well, uh, in order to, if our mother lives over on the other hilltop, we can't just go through the jungle to go get to our mother. We have to send our spirit ahead to look down the pathway to make sure it's safe before we'll actually take the physical journey. And I really, that really struck with me. And he said also, there are two types of people in the world, those who have retained their spirit knowledge and those who have lost it. And he said, and this was when I was 25 years ago, but uh, he said, uh, but our technology is uh, making that side of ourselves atrophy because if you want to call, talk to your mom, you just call her on the phone. You text, you email. So it's very, so quick. And so we're losing that. But he said, really, to, un- to have that spiritual knowledge and ability, skill set, uh, it's a survival mechanism. So we have to be sure that uh, we're not like diminishing that survival mechanism in, in our kids. That's a really good point. I haven't thought of it that way. Until you're just mentioning it, I, it makes me think of the Aboriginal culture in Australia. They've been able to communicate telepathically over vast distances, sometimes thousands of miles. And when they're on their walkabouts and things like that. But your point, Margot, about how technology is basically supplanting that is really, I think, profound. I, I think that you're really onto something with that. And at the same time, we all, I believe, as people understand, there's more to the story than meets the eye. We just intuitively know, okay, there's more here. Where, what is it? How do I access it? Is it real? Those kinds of things. I think that's where you and I come in to well, help and, people and with that. And that it often happens when we're in kind of despair. Uh, and when we ha- we're in a kind of a despair uh, part of our life, which is a normal part of life. This is what I always taught my high school students. And when I'm working with people on stress and burnout, I mean, rather than the highs and lows of life, you can have the highs plateaus, a little bit of low. So when you are in that despair, if you have the skill set, the tool set to say, okay, how do I dive in? to the life my spirit wants to live. Because if I'm in a despair part of my life, I'm probably not doing that. 
So how do I turn that around quickly and go back up into uh, where I feel either plateau or even higher joy? You say that you had teachers tell you that only the uneducated could communicate with spirits. How did that make you feel and did it motivate you in any way? Well, that's a really good question. Yes, I was 16 years old. I can feel myself sitting in my desk right now. And I wasn't a big put my hand up kind of person in the classroom. I was kind of a quiet, I would say myself invisible, but my friends probably said, you are not. But anyway, I felt invisible. And um, so I was sitting there and we were being introduced a book. And our English teacher said, uh, we're doing a historical fiction. And back in the day, the people then really believed in God. And they believed in that there was a spirit dimension and uh, that there was such a thing as, say, witches and all of this. And she presented it that way. And then she said, um, and, the, and they believed in that, this spirit dimension, because they were uneducated. We're educated today, so we realize that this isn't true. Well, okay, Julie, this is the one boundary in my life that I will just say, uh, stick my hand up and say, I put my hand up and I said, because Julie, this was the first time in my life that I realized not everybody had that. I had no idea that anybody ever thought that because it was just so normal and natural in my family. And my friends all knew I had this. They counted on me to know this and that and, you know, look ahead because I can see ahead for people and uh, so that they know what to avoid. And uh, so I put my hand up and I said, well, what do you what do you mean that people who are uneducated see the spirit dimension? Um, Spirits are everywhere. Can't you see them? And she kind of looked at me like. What are you talking about? And I sat back in my chair and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I'm Someday I'm going to go to a very prestigious university and I am going to study the concept of spirits. And I did. So I promised my spirit many times in my life. Four years old, you are to be a teacher, I'll do it. I promised my 16-year-old self that I would get my PhD and I went to Oxford in my 50s and did my PhD on spirituality in the classroom. So yeah, it really did motivate me to normalize this concept of of the spirit dimension. Well, it's interesting that you not only went to Oxford, obviously, but that you went to an area where it's in the culture, especially in the holidays, at Christmas time in the British culture, it's it's understood. I mean, I certainly there are are people who don't follow the spiritual thing, but it seems to be way more ensconced in the culture there than it does here in North in America. Religion. Would you agree with that? It, as a as a concept in terms of religion, not spirituality. I was using the word spirituality and and I basically couldn't write my thesis on just spirituality. They said you can't have spirituality without religion. And in fact this this spirituality is kind of woo woo. 
I had to do both. So I basically had to write two theses because for me, they're like not even related. Um, so I had to write two. And I, and I said, um, you know, I don't think you understand where I come from, how absent spirituality is um, around where you look. Like I, when I was in Oxford, I lived in a place, you can Google it. It's called uh, the mansion in Ifley Village in Oxford. You can Google it, anybody. And um, outside my bedroom window was a uh, medieval church with a medieval graveyard. And at first I thought, wow, I'm going to be nervous driving my little bike there through a graveyard because we don't even have like where I come from in Calgary, you don't see a graveyard. There are, there are barely churches. Occasionally there's a church that rings its bells on Sunday, but in England, the bells ring every hour. So it's like a marker of time, a religious time, the bell, the bells ring, the bells ring on Sunday morning. Uh, So they don't notice how present it is. At first I thought, well, I can't, my friend said, well, let's go for coffee here in a graveyard in the middle, right by our department. And I thought, like, I thought, do I have to hold my breast? Did you ever do that when you're a little kid? And you said, have you had to go through a graveyard? And um, so, but by about year two, I could sit there and have my coffee. It was just so foreign. I said, you don't understand how absent the concept of spirituality is, not just in our education, but in our everyday life. <laughs> and they have over there, they have mandatory religious education from zero right up to year 12. And um, it, so they have incorporated, they start with a religious umbrella and then they move towards a much more individual spirituality approach because they believe there as an education system that every person who calls themselves an educated person should be able to articulate their views on life and death to be an educated defying my high school English teacher there you go oh I love that one of my favorite stories about Ireland is there was an American archaeologist who was over there and he was walking down the street and he was just asking people excuse me ma'am do you believe in fairies excuse me do you believe in fairies and his favorite answer was from a woman who said no sir I do not and they're everywhere (laughs) that was perfect I thought that was a perfect answer and, yes, it, and to your point, it's in the culture. It's it's so embedded that they don't notice it's there. Right. But how would you like to be going to a job interview for me? So why did you want to become a teacher? Because a voice told me when I was four years old, <laughs> you are to be a teacher. I had to convert that over. Oh, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher ever since I was four years old. Well, you got to play the role. Right. Well, I do. And the thing is, when I do a lecture somewhere, because, you know, I hope we get to this whole model at some point today. And um, when I give a lecture and somebody will be there and say to me, well, don't you worry about having this completely proven in science, which I have chapters on brain and all that genetic studies and everything. But um, I just say to those people, oh, I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. I'm here to be a support to people who have this, like I have it. Yeah. Interesting. So what happened when you were a freshman in college? Uh, I had, uh, well, I had my first near-death experience. I call it a near-death, 
but apparently some people call it an out-of-body experience uh, because I wasn't on an operating table. I wasn't hooked up to any machines that could say my that it was an absolute death. But it was to me, and I was sick. So I was 18 years old, and I got uh, really sick, like my fever was off the chart. And they couldn't send me home because I was too sick to travel home. So they put me in this little infirmary in the basement of my residence, and they had this student nurse who was supposed to be checking in on me. And she said to me on a Friday night, oh, yeah, um, I've been just wanting to go out with this guy for so long, like I had my eye on him and he finally asked me out and he asked me out for tonight and I had to say no because I had to look after you. <laughs> I'm like, I can barely talk, right? Because I'm so sick and my throat is like swollen out to here. But I said, no, you, you go on your date. I'll be fine. I'll just sleep. That's all. And uh, so she said, well, I'm phoning you at nine o'clock because I had a phone by my bed. And I said, all right. She left, and then I, I, I guess I was sleeping, but I, my spirit came out. And you have to realize, when you have spiritual experiences, practically every day you live in the spirit dimension, like your whole life, you don't really know what it's like to not have it. Like I, I have no idea what it would be like not to have this. So for me, to have an experience in near death is just another one. And I, my spirit came out, and it was going out the window to the most glorious, un, like, unconditional, I could fly, I was free, it was orange, and I was just, like, basking in it like this. And then I thought, oh, I better go and say goodbye to my roommate. And I was in the basement of the infirmary, but my spirit was up on the ceiling. And it started coming out on the ceiling out of the basement. And then I saw all these girls in ball gowns um, dressed to go out to a ball, I guess. And then I zoomed up and I went in my dormitory room and my roommate wasn't there. And I said, too bad. Oh, no, I missed a step. I was coming out and I saw those girls. And one girl looked at me on the ceiling. And I did a somersault and I said, you've just seen your first ghost. And then I went up and I, I, I burst through the door. My roommate wasn't there. Sue was her name. And uh, we're still friends today. And uh, so I said, got to go. And I came back and I was flying out. And then I came back into my body. And it was like, <laughs> oh, okay. And then my nurse came running in and she said, I rang that phone like over 30 times over and over and you didn't put, pick up. I thought you were dead. And I said, I think I was. Were the girls going somewhere tonight? And she said they were going to the, our, the military college ball. And I said, I saw them. And she said, you can't even get out of bed. How could you have seen them? I was on the ceiling looking at them. So for me, it was a death. I wasn't hooked up to any machines to prove that my heart stopped or anything. Um, and, uh, so that was a really good experience for me to explore that, that experience, but I had a second one as well. You say that you can send your spirit places and other people can see you there. Tell us about that. I got intrigued with that because 
when I was in that Thai hill tribe, right? When they said that they, you could send your spirit out and go and have a look. And uh, when I was teaching, I had this friend and he was taking six months off to travel in Mexico and he was going to have his like, he was doing van life basically and he was driving around Mexico. And I thought, I wonder how he's doing. So I took my spirit out and I went down and I, and I was in the back seat of his car and I was just looking out the window like this. And uh, um, I said, hey, how are you doing? And he turned around and he looked kind of scared looking at me. And then a day later, I got this phone call. I was out in the desert. He didn't have a cell phone or anything at that time. And, and uh, he said, I turned around there. You were in the back seat of my car. And it's taken me this long to find a phone to say, what are you doing? But, uh, but I also used to go and see my mom. My mom had cancer and um, I, I lived in Calgary and she lived in Ottawa. So I took my, would take my spirit out and then go to, to her and I would clean her. You know how you do, you clean from the top and I was cleaning her like this. Clean, 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 all the way through like this and boom, down, wash. And that, so I had a system. It was like layer upon layer that I was doing. And then she phoned me and she said, were you here today? I said, well, I was. What did you see? And she said, well, I had to get one of my tests done today. And I felt as if somebody was painting out my cancer with a paintbrush. Mm -hmm. And when I opened my eyes, you were standing by my bed. And I knew I'd be okay. And then... Um, she, her cancer report was good. But then somebody came along because I was sort of new and kind of documenting my own experiences, which I highly recommend to all your viewers. Start writing down your experiences and experimenting with them. But somebody came along who was a spiritual healer and uh, said, you don't even know what you're doing. You've got to stop doing that. You could be doing more harm than good. And I stopped and the cancer came back and my mom passed away which I was with my mom when she passed. It was a beautiful experience. And she wanted to tell me all her stories that were coming in, how her spirit was already starting to go over to the other side. So it was a very intimate and beautiful experience to be with my mom. Well, I teach this stuff in my classes and it's uh, called astral traveling or non-local reality. And there are several exercises that we do. You can't hurt anybody by doing that. And we all decide when we go, where we go, who's with us when we go or not. So I hate to burst your bubble, but you didn't have that kind of power. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. The, the people that say that kind of thing are, they've got a bunch of fear that they need to work through because spirit's pure love and joy. Spirit ain't going to do anything that's going to be detrimental to any other spirit, any or other person. Or it's power, Julie. Like sometimes in our world, doing what we do, um, there are some people who are competitive. And I think somehow that gets in there instead of appreciating what people's gifts are. And I think it is good for people to nurture their gifts. And I'm glad you're here helping people nurture their own gifts. Well, and power comes from fear. Anything that's a derogatory feeling is always based in fear. So people who have an ego issue and have to control things, they're, they're coming from fear always. And I think that's the bottom line there, regardless of what the niche is, what the industry is. 
You wrote your doctoral dissertation about bringing spirituality into the classroom. Why did you choose that after you heard you are to be a teacher? Well, you could have been a teacher. We covered that. You could be a teacher in a multitude of ways. Why did you kind of hone in on that bringing spirituality into the classroom? One day, I, on the first week of school, I do get acquainted activities, and I gave my students all grades, grade 10, grade 11, grade 12, and I gave them this uh, little essay to read. It was called uh, The Seven Wonders, and it was a man who was going to a dinner party, and he had to bring his own seven personal wonders. So I said to the kids, okay, I'd like you to make your own personal set of seven wonders, and uh, whatever it is, and then we're going to share two of them. And if you want to give me your wonders, then I will keep a lookout for any kind of literature, poetry, films that kind of speak to your wonders. If I see an article, I'll put it on your desk in the morning. If I think of something, I'll sit it there for you. And uh, some kids stood at my desk and said, "Um, Miss McKenna, I'm wondering, am I allowed to wonder about these things? And I opened up their piece and I have kind of a big voice. And they said, no, just whisper, don't tell anybody what's on my list. And uh, it was, is God real? Where do I go after I die? Are ghosts real? Do I have a purpose in life? Do I have a soulmate? And it was a list of what I would call spiritual wonder. And I said, well, of course, if that's what you wonder about, that's what I wonder about all the time. And it, you know, I sat back in my chair kind of like I did when I was 16 years old, when my teacher said, you know, only uneducated people. And I sat back in my chair and I thought, what happened to our education system that would have kids wondering if they are allowed to wonder about the fundamental questions about human existence? Why isn't there a course, like in England, where you learn how to navigate those questions. How do you research and and find out how you're going to articulate your own understandings about those ideas? So that's why I thought, well, I'm going to go and study that then. And I'm going to... I'm going to get to your findings and your research here in a second. A couple of other questions before we get there, however. As a high school English teacher you discuss spirituality and use literature to do so. I find that it spirituality is all throughout all the great literature. Can you give us some examples of some of your favorites that you use to teach the kids about, look, this stuff's been around since the beginning of time and it's in our world today too. Well, funny you should ask that, Julie, because in my book I have uh, some of, I start each chapter with quotes right out of some of the texts that we studied. Um, But, you know, great literature, enduring literature is about the human condition. And spirituality is so much a part of that, the enduring part. We don't have all the answers. But if I were to just pinpoint one piece, let we, we, I don't know about your school system, but our students have to uh, study a Shakespeare piece every year in high school. Well, Macbeth is all about seeing spirits, having premonitions into the future, visions, all of that. So I would say to the kids, so how many of you 
because they, he goes to the witches and the witches give the prediction. And I said, how many of you have been to a tarot card reader or a psychic or a, some sort of a healer? How many of you have seen a ghost? How many like have had an experience? They want to spend a whole period telling their stories. And I always remember one boy and he was in his football jacket and he hardly ever talked. And one day we were actually studying Hamlet at that in that particular class. And Hamlet, of course, to be or not to be. And he sees his father's ghost at the top of the castle. That's what, how the story begins. And I remember this one boy and he said, um, once you've had a spiritual experience, you can never go back. You ha- you're different. It, not, life is never the same after. And I would say that's true. Well, and I think people that haven't studied literature too, pretty much everybody in North America anyway, certainly in a lot of of the UK countries and the Commonwealth, they know Dickens' Christmas Carol. And it's about the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And they all know that whole story. And I say, what do you think they're talking about there? They're talking about your spirit guides. They're talking about that kind of thing. And I think of Plato and King Lear and my gosh, it's endless. The different stories in literature where this is just a common thread in all of them. Well, some some people say to me, well, what do um, you know? Why would kids want to study Shakespeare? Are you kidding? Shakespeare brought out the big questions, the big dilemmas that we have as human beings. Even Romeo and Juliet, she has a vision too in there. And and at the end, you know, we, we talk about, well, what do you think, where do you think their spirit goes at the end? Well, I'm sure the answers about, are all across the board. Well, it depends. Some are faith-based and some are, um, you know, we even talk about, um, you know, like what would happen in their religion if, uh, if, you know, they took the potion or they killed them. We talk about all those things. Um, and with Hamlet, because Hamlet has a to be or not to be, and uh, where, you know, a lot of people say, is that um, him thinking of suicide or something? But we talk about uh, Hamlet's feelings. And the kids say, well, it looks like he wants to end it all. And we talk about, well, do you ever feel like that? And some kids, yay, sometimes I feel like that. And then they'll ask me, do you ever feel like that? And I said, yes, I do. Well, because I'm a spirit-dominant person, which is what I'm hoping we're going to talk about today, too. I'm a spirit-dominant person. I find life unnecessarily harsh and abrasive. Not so much now, because I've worked my way through that. But um, I used to feel that because I was a little kid, knowing I lugged around a body, and I would say, how long do I have to stay here? And sometimes I just want it to go home. And we'd have conversations about, well, so yeah, sometimes I want to go home. And they'll be, well, what do you do? And we'd talk about, what do I do when I have those feelings of wanting to go home? When we incarnate, do you think we come in with a script of things that we want to explore and experience and subscripts as Well, well? Yes, I, I'm coming more to that. Like, I'm always growing. I always say I know a lot about what I know. I don't know a lot about what I don't know. 
And uh, so I've been really listening to people talking about uh, their near-death experiences where they talk about a blueprint, coming in with a blueprint, and that you forget your blueprint. And my, the, whoever this voice is, that says you are to be a teacher. It's there all the time. Like, it's like, don't say that, Margo. You know how you hear that voice that says, don't say it, and then you say it, and then you kick yourself. Why did I say that? But anyway, so I have that voice. It keeps me on my blueprint. It won't let me off. I'm on it. And I think, yes, I came down here to do this. My goal is to make sure I do as much of it as I possibly can. I want to fill it up. Most of us have busy lives and we know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one, it's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. And I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals. B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, altogether, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals, dot com, and use Julie Ryan at checkout, and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. It's the adventure of it all, isn't it? Yeah. So what are the five dimensions of self? Well, I, I, when I was doing my master's degree, I was doing actually teacher professional learning and organizational culture. Doesn't that sound like kind of a real education topic? So anyway, I, 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 we had to take 10 courses and then we had to write a thesis. At the very last course, I said, I'm going to take a class that's just for myself. And it was called uh, Philosophy of Mind. And our first homework assignment was how are the body, how are the body, mind, spirit related? And I thought, oh, that's super cool. I'm going to go home and find out that right now. Good question. So I went home and I have a little system where I have to, I have to live in a very clean, uncluttered space where that's really super shiny. So I made sure everything was just like that. Lit my candle, got my uh, yellow pad of paper out. And, uh, I just went to that guy that tell, tells me how I'm supposed to live my life and what my blueprint is. So I said, so what's the answer? How are the body, mind, spirit related? This figure, Julie, came into my living room. It was massive. I couldn't see like eyes, nose. It was just like a very massive figure. It was bubbling over with excitement to tell me that we had more than three dimensions, body, mind, spirit. We had five dimensions. So I put my book like this. So you have five dimensions. You have a body, mind, spirit, soul. I said, spirit and soul? I thought they were the same thing. No, they're two different dimensions. And you have oneness. I put one here because oneness was too big for that little quadrant. But anyway. 
So we have five dimensions of self. We're born dominant in one of them, and we grow the others over time. So let's just say our body is, mine looks like this, yours looks like that, your your viewers, they you could look at their body dimension, but it's anything material like your home and your car, all those things. Um, so you have the body dimension, you have a mind dimension, which is your logical, rational self, your intellectual. It's your systems. It does your taxes, pays your mortgage, makes a to-do list. Your spirit is the part of you that came from absolute unconditional love down in here, got inside this body that looks like this and with a mind that thinks like this, um, and got inside this body to have this human experience. The soul is your purpose. So it's different. This is actually your spirit that can come out and go and check on your friend in Mexico or go heal your mom in Ottawa. And your soul is your purpose. And oneness is your connection to God, universe, creator. You, you have that as part of who you are. And it's also your sense of connection and belonging. So now, you're born dominant in one, so body dominant people. Love, uh, all the physical parts of life. Food, delicious food, hair, makeup, nails, fashion, decorating, cars, those, you know, those sports, Julie, like rugby and, you know, that are sweaty and real body sports. Love them. I love body dominant people because I'm not one. So I find they're fun to be around. Mind dominant, love the logical, rational systems, organizing Excel spreadsheets. My daughter's mind dominant and she doesn't get this woo woo stuff. And so she said, mom, I just don't get it, but I'm happy to create an Excel spreadsheet whenever you need it. Thanks. Spirit dominant value, unconditional love, peacefulness, passion. They know they came down here. Sometimes they find the world to be unnecessarily harsh and abrasive. And sometimes they want to go home now. They get saturated by the human experience every day. And they have to go and lie down or just go and be by themselves for a while. And sometimes they want to go home. And I really want to get this message out to as many people as possible who have that feeling, Julie, because I'll show you how to pull it together so that your spirit loves it here. Loves it here. Soul dominance their purpose and meaning is more important than anything else. So they, do you ever watch that show like Dragon's Den or something where they show up with their invention and um, they're quite often soul dominant people. They don't care if they've only sold one because they've helped one person. Whereas mm -hmm. the mind dominant dragons want to see the dollars and cents and how many and how you've marketed and all that. But soul dominance and oneness, dominance, value, connection, and belonging more than that. So that's it in a nutshell.
That's a different take on the soul definition than I've ever heard before, Margot. I always use the word spirit because I believe that's the everlasting part of us. I'll say, okay, I'm talking to the deceased mother's spirit who's in heaven and is in non-physical. And the soul term has always, to me, had a religious connotation to it. So that's a different explanation of of what soul means. The other thing that I find interesting about soul is the airlines, when a plane goes down or they have an issue, they'll say, okay, there were 185 souls on board. What do you think's going on with that? I know I've noticed that too, because I love all the aircraft uh, on Instagram and everything. And I hear, I hear them talking about that. And I, I find that also very interesting. But I'll tell you why this distinction between spirit and soul works is that when I had students who wanted to go home, because I could see it in their eyes, Julie, because their eyes went dead. And uh, they would have their hoodie on and just kind of you'd see them like becoming invisible before your eyes. So I would bring them in and I'd say, well, come and come and have lunch here today. And I'd say, so what's happening? And, uh, and somehow with knowing them and being able to chat and being open and, um, and them trusting me, it would come out that they wanted to go home. And so we could go in here and say, okay, well, where are you low? Have you created the life your spirit wants to live? Well, that's my job. That's my number one job as a mother, as a teacher, as a friend is to help people create the life their spirit wants to live. That's my job as your teacher. Um, So we would flesh that out. What is that? And maybe sometimes there was something happening in their lives that was crushing their spirit. They might have come out of an abusive household or something happened. And I'd say, listen, just tell me what it is. If I can help you, I will. And if I don't know how, I'll find somebody who can help you. But we're going to help you right now. And then sometimes they'd say, my life has, I just feel that this is meaningless because school can be a very meaningless experience to a lot of kids, Julie. Like they're learning things that have no relevancy to their lives and being tested on it and everything. So I'd say, okay, well, then your soul dimension is low. Let's see if we can pull this around so that you see the purpose in what I'm showing you here in the classroom. Let's see if we can find the meaning of your other courses. And then quite often their oneness dimension was low. They, had, they didn't have a lot of friends. So their, their skill set for connection and belonging was low. You see what I mean? If you look at it, you can see. And just finding their sense of purpose. And I'd say, don't go home yet or else you won't have, you won't have explored your whole soul dimension. Interesting. Do you find that the kids in the spirit dimensions, kids and adults, for that matter, are more prone towards depression and or having suicidal thoughts than the other dimensions? I would say yes, but I also think that our society has become so mind dominant. Like this quest for money and what success looks like and what we're supposed to have accomplished in our lives and that it's becoming so burdensome 
that a lot of people just want to go home. It's not fun anymore. So trying to lift off this kind of the mind dominant. Now, I don't want to beat up on mind dominance. My dad is a mind dominant engineer, and he is so fantastic. Why? Because he's developed all of his dimensions. He doesn't just live over here. So, you know, I'm a spirit dominant, but that uh, some people want to be spirit dominant because they think it sounds nice, but it's a very hard place to live. It would be easier if you're this and this. But I think that our society and our school system is too mind dominant. And that's why we're finding behavior problems. And that's why we're finding kids quitting school because it's too mind dominant. There isn't enough of this going on. We're not thinking about have we created an environment for kids to create the life their spirit wants to live? Is this meaningful? And are we create are we focusing on connection and belonging? In your research, did you find that a percentage of the population was more dominant in one area than another? And how what was the percentage of people that if you studied it that could expand into encompassing all of the different dimensions? Well, when I got accepted at Oxford, we were going to expand this book, the model, and do a whole research project on that. But when I got to Oxford, my the man who accepted me was going to be my supervisor ended up with cancer. And he said, I can't supervise you. So I was passed over to somebody else who said, you're not doing it. That's too risky. Just do very generally religion and spirituality. So, okay, so I, I had a hierarchical sample of policymakers and teachers and principals and all of that, a big sample size. And we explored spirituality and what that would look like and what were teachers doing to bring spirituality into their classrooms. Um, I would have loved, loved, loved. And in fact, my statistics department at Oxford, they said we could do like a Myers-Briggs kind of a instrument tool using this um, and that might have to be left to somebody who wants to take that on I'm not sure if I want to take that on right now but um, I do have in here like a nice kind of um, tool in here where you can start measuring where you are think of yourself on a spectrum so when your question was do you think there's a certain population percentage you have all these five dimensions. I think it's, it's clearer if you say, how am I doing on my body dimension? How am I doing on my mind dimension? And if you think of each one of these on a spectrum from one to five, um, I, I'm not a body dominant person. I would call myself body competent. I'm not a mind dominant person but I'm mind competent. I'm a spirit dominant person. And I'm almost verging on soul dominant now too, because I'm working on my soul so much. So I really don't know to answer your question, the percentage of the population. But I live downtown Calgary, and I see um, some people who are quite sick with drugs on the street. And I think, oh, you know, I wonder if they were spirit dominant. Mm -hmm. 
and just couldn't handle, you know, life. Did you see a shift in any of the areas of the five dominant quad? They're not quadrants. What what is it? They're well, the five. The five. What's five? Five dimensions. Quintuple. Yeah. Quintuple. Quintuple quadrants. Quintuple yeah. areas. Did you notice that that any of that shifted or changed during the pandemic? Pandemic, Margot, when people were somewhat isolated in in instances a lot isolated and did you notice that there was a shift in that that people had the opportunity to develop others whereas maybe they fell off in some was there anything that that you noticed about the pandemic I did because I started doing loneliness epidemic research and presenting to teachers on the loneliness epidemic because the if you look at oneness which is connection and belonging a lot of people, one, connection and belonging is a skill set. You, you can learn how to build that skill set. And in fact, I used to teach my students how to have connection, how to walk into a room and feel like you belong there. You're at home there. And uh, so it's a skill set. And I think during the pandemic lockdown, this skill set in a lot of people deteriorated. And in fact, many people like just being in their comfy pajamas at home and they didn't want to go out into the world. But just like, you know, the body dimension, if you're a runner and you haven't run for two years, you're going to be a bit rusty getting back to it. Same thing here. You have to practice your connection and belonging skills every day. And I think people this deteriorated to the point where they were a little anxious actually having to go back into work. But the, that alone time opened up this and this for people. So they were saying, do I really want to go back to that job? Is it part of my meaning and purpose? Is it creating the life that my spirit wants to live? And people did a lot of self-reflection here because we have all five dimensions, but they open up and shut down at different times in our life. If you go to university and it's a, such a mind-dominant thing, these kind of shut down because you have to pour all your energy in here. And I think during the pandemic, rather than shutting these down, they opened it up. I agree. I agree. My business was very robust during that time. People people wanted answers. They knew that there was more to the story. They wanted to feel a sense of belonging in more than just a human way. I think it, it opened up those channels, just like you're describing. Can you give us a crash course on how to develop oneness? You just said you used to teach your high school kids. Do you have a couple of techniques that you can share with us to have people help, yes. help them develop their oneness? Yes. Category? Yes. And I'm going, my first book, when I first came up with this model, I was still so spirit dominant that I was pining to go home. I was, okay, I used to say this, Julie, like, I'd have to give a lecture and they want me to talk about my near-death experience. And I used to say, I used to get them mixed up and I'd say, well, in my near-life experience, Oh, no, I mean, near death. I realized I was having a near life experience. I was so much in the spirit dimension. I wasn't fully appreciating 
all that being a human being in the body and the mind dimensions that were available to me, I stayed in the spirit dimension and I longed to go home. So I wrote my first book, my first iteration of my model, was I called it The Exquisiteness of Being Human because I saw my older sister. We went on vacation together and she was lying on this couch that it was a rental property, right? She had this blanket pulled up and this cup of coffee. I'm sitting like on the, right on the edge of a chair, barely touching it because I was kind of invisible at that point in my life. And I looked at her and I, and she said, tell me about your life. What's happened this year? And I thought, you know what the difference between you and me is you're at home everywhere and I'm at home nowhere. I feel like a stranger here on earth. I've never really grounded. And so in that moment, I thought, I'm going to find the exquisiteness of my life. And then I started bringing that into the classroom. And I, because I wanted to build connection and belonging, not just with other people, but my life as Margot McKinnon as a grounded body person who's here. So I started on that. And uh, I used to not like going to like cocktail parties or anything like or having to go into a room full of strangers. So I said to my students, hey, do you want to know how to get your teacher to like you on day one and take an interest in you for the whole year? They're all looking at me. Yes. And I said, walk through the door with your back like this, chest open. Look at your teacher and say, oh, good morning. Do you have a seating plan or would you like us to sit wherever we like? May be the first to make the connection. And then they'd line up out at the, the door. Okay, you come through the door and I'd be sitting there like some director on a movie set. Cut, 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 cut. No, be more visible. Walk in like you own the place. Now sit in your chair. You belong here. Now, then we'd have, how do, how do you talk to strangers? So then they'd be sitting in groups of four. Now, you're to inter interview one person at your table. And, you, and, the, and you're, the object is to make that person sound amazing, like everybody wants to be that person's friend. That's your task. And they would come up and they would stand up there and they didn't know anybody, stand up there and introduce this person like as the most amazing person ever. And uh, so it, it was those kind of skills. And then when they came to giving oral presentations, I didn't really care about the content. I was more, how do you stand up there and present yourself? And how do you breathe? And how do you own the room and own your space and have your voice? And that's how I developed in them connection and belonging skills. And I said, this is a classroom where you have 35 friends right here. That's a start. I love it. I love Starter. it. See, I was teaching your stuff to sorority girls. I was a sorority advisor for a dozen, a dozen years at the University of Alabama, and I would teach 450 girls every year in the fall when the new ones came in how to do presentations, how to use their skills, their social skills to help them not only in their college experience, but also as they grew and graduated and got married. And now I still get texts from a lot of them or they'll put a note on 
social media and send me a DM and they'll say, Miss Julie, blah, 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 blah. See, I was teaching your stuff. I didn't even know I was doing it. Well, I, I said hadn't to, met you yet. Yeah. Well, I said to my students, most people are uncomfortable in that situation. They're going to walk into a room and it's, it's one of the biggest experience people don't like to do is to walk in, you don't know anybody. And I said, so how about we become really, really good at it? Because walking into a room full of strangers is something you're going to have to do over and over and over in your life. Be the best at it. Be really good. Feel at home. And make other people feel at home with you. Right. Well... (laughs) I think the whole situation too with fear is what is it? Number one is the fear of death, and number two is the fear of public speaking, or maybe they're. I think it's the other way around. Maybe it's, it's the other way around. Speaking and then death. Oh my they'd gosh! Rather, is that crazy? Yeah, they'd rather you know, like yeah. Crazy. So if we can, and then we have so much social anxiety, and teachers are telling me that the social anxiety post COVID is off the chart. Why? Because the kids have uh, this skill set was not developed during COVID and they developed a fear. So teachers have to get back in there and reteach about connection and belonging. Well, and to your point earlier, too, they all rely on the so on the texts and the social media stuff and all that jazz, which mm-hmm. really negates their interpersonal communication one on one. And it's it's all done electronically. Well, to get true. them to answer the phone sometimes is even a chore. They'll text you sooner than they're going to answer the phone and talk to you. Oh, yeah. Well, my own kids don't phone me, mom, just send me a text. Yeah, I can get a reply two weeks later. There you go. <gasps> How's that alphabet soup after your name that PhD from Oxford, no less? How's that help you with your mission and life's purpose? Well, I wanted to get my PhD because I told my 16-year-old self that I would. And there were times that I wanted to give up on it because it was really hard because I was considered woo-woo. But I really wanted to speak precisely to mind-dominant people because they run the world. And in our area, it's important, I think, for us to be able to speak articulately and build trust that there really is a spirit dimension. So it's really helped me because I have the research all pulled together and I know what teachers are saying. So it's really helped me with that skill set. But I tend to be working on this more and the teachers really like this model because it really helps them design a lesson plan. So I can look at them and I'll say, okay, how's your classroom looking? What is, what... um, You know, are you trying to accomplish and what are your goals here? Are you looking at the spirit of the children? Is this going to be meaningful? How are you going to bring that out in your lesson? And how are you going to, in your lesson, incorporate connection and belonging? Every lesson. And uh, so they like it, and that's mainly what I'm doing now. Plus, I do meetup groups, and I do an Ask the Universe group and those kinds of things. Well, and I would think the PhD from Oxford in academia 
means more than any other area. I mean, certainly it gives you instant credibility, but especially in academia when you're working with educators. Well, it does. It means something to them. And in the beginning, I was speaking to, before I wrote my first, this book, I was speaking to psychiatrists and doctors and because I was being invited to speak at these conferences. And I thought I can't get up there and say, hi, I'm Margot McKinnon, high school English teacher. Not that I wasn't proud of that. I was very proud of it. But I needed to be Dr. Margot McKinnon. It did give credibility. It, and um, I think the people I attract, they, they like that credibility, just like you have your credibility. Um, so, yeah, I really like having my PhD. It was worthwhile. Wonderful. Why do we incarnate? Well, my mom came down and told me after she passed, about two years later, she came back and told me what Judgment Day is. And long story short, uh, she was I was making Thanksgiving dinner and she was standing in the kitchen trying to get my attention. And uh, uh, I said, Mom, I really don't have time to talk. I'm, I've got to get this Thanksgiving dinner done. And she said, no, I need to talk to you right now. And I said, okay. So I put everything down to talk to her. And she said, I'm here to tell you what judgment day is. And I said, okay, um, what is it? And she said, when you pass, you go over and, uh, and then you have to come back down and get inside all the people that were important to you. And you have to wear around their consciousness to find out what it was like to have you in their life. So for me, she was coming to wear around my consciousness to find out what it was like for me to have her as her mo- as my mother. And she said, once you get all the pieces together of the kind of human being you were, you get to go to the next level. So she said, I'm, I'm doing you, then I'm going to go off to your brother and your sisters. I've got to do your dad. And she said, uh, and she she might have even come to me first because I helped her pass, go over to the other side. So that made me get thinking, okay, uh, you have to find out what it was like. And so we had quite a conversation about what it was like for her to be my mom. And uh, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have that conversation with all the people who are important to me now. I don't want to have it over on the other side. I want to have it now. I want to clear the air and all of that stuff. But then after that, I realized you find out, because she said, when you go over, it's not God judging you, you judge yourself. How did you do? And I thought, oh, isn't that really fascinating? So you judge yourself and then you come back down again for a do-over. I used to be really shy growing up because I was super sensitive. So when I when I do my judgment day this time around, I go back up. Margot, did you conquer your shyness? Why, yes, I did. What did you do to conquer your shyness? Well, I did these things. Did you, you know, so I think we come back for do-overs to see if we can have a better experience of some of our flaws. That's why you keep getting them. You know how you hear that? uh, You keep getting the same thing until you get it. Whether you keep getting into toxic relationships until you learn how not to get into toxic relationships. So I think we're down to to conquer some of the 
some of what we bring down here, whether it's shyness or being in toxic relationships. And then to also maybe extend, like I might be coming back down if I don't finish working on this, I might be coming back back again to keep carrying on with this. So I think that's, if that, if that makes a lot of sense to you, I don't know. Yeah, that's a, such a big question. I think we come back down here as a do-over and mm-hmm. to extend, because I've had a, my, one of my past lives. She's speaking through me right, not right now, but in this lifetime, she wants me to extend her purpose. It's been my experience that we all come in to create and we all come in to experience and live joy. And it's also been my experience too, Margo, that I will see a semblance of a script that will repeat, to your point, through multiple lifetimes. And we look at it from a different perspective, different time, different place, different gender, same basic script. And the analogy that I use for past lives, you'll appreciate this, is Hamlet. You think about how many times has Hamlet been performed since Shakespeare wrote it in 1602? Who knows? Certainly the same script, but different perspective. Where was it performed? In what year? By whom? What was happening in the world? What language were they using? Who were the actors? Who was the director? All of those different variables give us a different perspective of the same script. And that's what I'll see repeat through multiple lifetimes. And then we'll correlate it with, okay, you had this in this past life. It would be fun for us to do that with you sometime. You had these past lives where you were looking at this. And now in this day and age, you've expanded out from there and you've added this, these different nuances and perspectives to the overall equation of exploring whatever the topic is. It's really fascinating. Do you think that we come down and choose our parents? Do you Absolutely. think we choose that we choose this life? Absolutely. I believe that we choose our parents, we choose where we're born, when we're born, to whom we're born, and the circumstances into which we're born. So our lives will have a basic trajectory that will allow us to explore and experience whatever it is that script is, and all those subscripts that we want to explore in this lifetime. And furthermore, I it's been my experience too, that we all choose when we go how we go, who's with us or not, what the circumstances are. Because there are endless stories about everybody sat with grandma for three weeks and Aunt Susie was on duty and she left the room for two minutes to go get a cup of coffee and grandma slipped out while she was alone. And you want to say, grandma, what's up with that? Funeral directors, critical care providers, the stories are endless. And so, I and I've heard it many, many, many times from multiple spirits that, yeah, I chose to go in this way because it was quick. It was easy. I didn't want to be a burden. And I waited until my son arrived from wherever. I have a friend. I was on the phone with him. He lives here in Birmingham and he was driving to North Carolina. His father was dying and they were getting ready to take him off the ventilator and he was just hoping he would make it in time. So we're having a conference call. I'm on the phone with my friend and I'm psychically, you know, telepathically talking to his dad and I'm saying, wait till he gets here. Bill's on the way. He's going to be there. He's, I, I talked to him for the last hour of his trip. I said, okay, he's, 
he was telling me, here's what's on the GPS. I'll be there in 35 minutes or whatever. I said, okay, Bill's going to be there. Bill got there. He died within about 15 minutes after Bill arrived. And there are just endless stories. So yes, I do find that that is the case. Well, how do you explain though, like when my son uh, was three and I was tucking him into bed and uh, he said, you know, mom, before I was born, I was talking to God. And I said, oh, what, well, what were you talking about? And he said, well, God told me I had to come down and be a human. Oh, well, what did you say to God about that? Well, I told him I didn't want to come down. Because, and I said, well, why not? Well, because it's so nice over there, Mom. And it's not so nice over here. Oh, so did you tell God that? I did. And then what happened? Well, he told me I had to come. And so then I said, could you show me my mother? And he took like what looked like a photograph of you out of like a photo album. And he showed me the picture. And then I thought, oh, she looks mean and I don't want to come down and be her son. Okay. And then what, how did God answer that? Well, God told me, no, I'm telling you, you have to come down and you have to be her son. So I got inside your body. And then when I was born, I looked at your face and I thought, oh, you're beautiful. And I'm so glad you're my mom. But the interesting part for me of that story was he was born dead. He was feet first, the cord around his neck. He was like blue, limp, not breathing, heart stopped. And so they took him out and they were doing CPR on him. So I think that conversation happened in that where he had a choice of whether he was going to come in or not come in. So in that story, it seems to me, God told him he had to come down, that I had to be, he didn't choose me. And somehow my son is now 31. and. Um, you know, we have always had a really close relationship because we know that God put us together. Well, we can expand that out into into the great unknown. And the thought that comes to my head on this, Margot, is we are all God. Spirit is all the same thing. We're a fractal of the divine. So when he says God told me that was his spirit, telling him, which is the same as God. Mm -hmm. So if we're a drop of water and you put us into the ocean, we become the ocean. So I'm getting real woo on you here with this, but it's, it's what's coming into my mind. I get what I call divine downloads. So I'm listening to you and I'm getting information fed into my head. And that's my explanation for that. I, a couple of other stories were coming in of, of people that I know, either clients or friends, kids, and their kids. And one in particular, my girlfriend's daughter was in the pool with her son and he was maybe three or four. His name's Walter. Great name, Walter. And Walter said, mommy, you're my favorite of all my mommies. And she said, well, honey, I'm your only mommy. And he said, no, mom, you're my favorite of all my mommies. And she said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, babies are born and they choose their mommy and their daddy and then they grow up and then they die and then they go back to heaven and then they choose their next mommy and daddy. And you're my favorite of all my mommies. 
And she, so she's on the phone with her mom, who's my girlfriend, say, call Julie and find out what she has to say about this. And the stories like that are just endless of little kids saying things like that. Another one of my favorites too, Margo, is a a little girl. No, it was a little boy who's same age, three or four. I find, and I have a 31-year-old son too, and I find that a lot of those conversations took place in the bathtub when they're playing with their toys and stuff like that. That's when the kind of really important conversations can happen. (laughs) And so this little boy said, um, Mom, I don't want to be away from you. I I just really need to stay with you all the time. And she said, "Well, hey, you have to go to school. You know, you have we have to learn, and and that's what kids do. You'll go to school, but then I'll pick you up and I'll be here." And he said, "Mom, I just don't. I really don't want to be apart from you." And she said, "Well, why not?" And he said, "Because, Mom, if we get separated in our next life, and it takes me a long time to find you." I I just don't want to go through that. I just want to stay with you all the time. And I think those are two really good examples of little kids get this stuff. They, before they're taught to shut it down, they understand. And the information that comes from them from a spiritual standpoint, among other things, is so profound in a lot of instances. And we learn, we think that they're with us so we can teach them. In essence, they're here to teach us. I find that every generation is more advanced than the previous one, both spiritually and intellectually. I, I don't know if you've been around any toddlers, but they know how to use an iPad and iPhone better than I do. And they can't even talk yet. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, how's that work? Well, it's mm-hmm. like they're pre-programmed. They come in because our experiences expand the collective consciousness. So they come in, they take up what we've learned in our lifetime, and then they create from that, which I find is really interesting. Yeah, we also view children differently than in the past. You know, remember, children should be seen and not heard, that sort of thing. So we view children differently, which creates a a more fertile environment for them to grow into who they really can be. Whereas in previous generations, they were kind of more tight, I think, sometimes. But, um, you know, I was thinking about that story, though, with my son, because I'm watching all these blueprint things, and I'm quite fascinated by that. And a lot of people in their near-death experiences say that they went over and they and their life is shown to them like pictures or little video footage. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that picture he was shown was like a picture from his blueprint, you know, like a photograph. Maybe. Because one of my readers uh, wrote to me to say, I read your book. And then soon after, like six months or something, she said, my three-year-old said, oh, before I was born, God showed me a picture of you. So I thought, ah, oh, that's interesting. Well, it's been my experience too. And I do a lot of work with energy healing. And uh, when I describe what I'm watching in my mind's eye, the healing occur, it comes in in symbols. It comes in, it's like I'm watching a movie. And some of the descriptions are really hilarious. Like I might tell you your elbow looks like a bowl of whipped cream or something crazy like that. But what I found over the years is that if we talk in symbols and that's how spirit communicates. It bypasses the conscious mind, goes right into the subconscious 
and it helps integrate the healing, helps integrate the concepts because by bypassing the conscious mind, we're foregoing, oh, this is nonsense. This is my imagination. This can't be real. This whatever. Mm-hmm. And we go right in and it helps integrate the healing or whatever the concept is that we're we're exploring to your graph, you know, your chart with the five areas, you're using symbolism, you're using a, a something that's a visual tool to help go past that conscious mind, at least to open the conversation and go into the subconscious, which will elicit a response of, ooh, this looks interesting. I want to know more about this, even if their conscious mind is going, oh, that's a bunch of hooey. I don't, you know, I'll buy that. But there's something that's piquing their interest with that. Well, when I uh, wrote this one, because this is my first iteration, I actually wrote it exactly how that very large spirit spoke. And it actually said, we have oneness. We have soul. We have spirit. We have mind. We have body. And so I wrote this book with oneness coming first. At the time, I didn't know much about oneness because my sense of oneness was low. At the time, I had a great connection with the universe spiritual dimension, but not with people or, or living here or anything. So I didn't really kind of understand it at the time. So I focused more on like soul and, and downward. But in my second iteration, I put body first because my editor said, Margo, most of the world operates from a mind-dominant perspective. So put body first because they'll understand, yes, I have a body. Yes, I have a rational system side of me. Yes, I have a spirit. Because if I say some people's spirits are in a job that's crushing their spirit, right? Okay, yeah, I have a spirit. I have a soul purpose. Yes, I get that. And I have a oneness, which is connection. You can move them. If you start with the body, you can move them through. I felt like I was being dishonest to the voice, but my editor said, no, Marco, you need to get it in a way that people can understand it. If you start with oneness, you're going to lose people right away. So in here, I still had to go in and say, just remember, though, oneness comes first. Connection and belonging comes first. You know, as far as... If we put connection and belonging first in everything we did, how would our world be different today? Very different. Yeah. Because that's a universal want, right? A universal desire of every human. And I think it would be very different. And at the same time, we create out of the contrast when we know what we don't want, it helps us create what we do want. And I believe that if we lived in a world where everybody was kind and wonderful and all of that, yeah, it would be great for a time, but then we wouldn't be propelled to create out from there, perhaps, because that's when the greatest creations happen is when we know what we don't want. Well, it's true. And what we were talking about at the very beginning of this, very often our spiritual side opens up when we're in a point of despair. Exactly. So we we need that contrast in order to kind of shake us up a little bit and say, you know, how can I pull myself out of this and and, uh, bring back joy? I agree. Well, I could talk to you for another hour. Mm -hmm. However, we'll have to have you back 
And I just am so delighted that you took the time to join us today. How can people find you? How can they find more about you and your work? Uh, well, you can Google me for starters and you'll see things on there. And you, my website is www.drmargomckinnon.com. You can order my book from there uh, if you're interested in that. Um, I have some webinars coming up in September. And I do, uh, I'm starting a new meetup group, but I have two on the go right now. Uh, and one is called, they're both called Ask the Universe, but you can read about that on my website. So just go and look me up, D-R-M-A-R-G-O-T-M-C-K-I-N-N-O-N.com. All right, Dr. Margot, thank you for joining us and enlightening us with your interesting concepts and new ways of teaching. I think they're really profound. Thank you, Julie, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. You are most welcome. Sending you lots of love from Sweet Home Alabama. And from and Calgary. From Canada, from Calgary. <laughs> and I'll see you next time. Bye, Thank everybody. You. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan. And like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.